Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1983, a presidential commission was given the job of evaluating the American educational system. The people on the commission ran colleges and universities. They were former governors. They were captains of industry. What they wrote was called a nation at risk. That report said, and this is a quote, if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. A few years later, a new sort of school started to gain steam, charter schools. Across the country, but especially in big cities, charter schools are changing the game. Back in 2005, after Hurricane Katrina ripped through New Orleans, the state legislature allowed the city to turn 80 percent of the city's public schools into charter schools. So what does the data tell us about how charter schools have performed in the last quarter century or so and whether they help or hurt our schools? David Osborne is the director of the Reinventing America's Schools Project at the Progressive Policy Institute. He is also author of the book Reinventing America's Schools. He's a former aide to Vice President Al Gore. And Chester Finn is a president emeritus at the Fordham Institute. He's a former assistant secretary of education in the Reagan administration and author of the book Charter Schools at the Crossroads. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good to be here. Nice to be with you. Thanks. Chester, let's start real big picture here right before we dive into charters. So if you go back to the to the early 80s, uh, to that nation at risk report when nobody really knew uh, what a charter was, how do you feel like, just bring us up to date, how do you feel like the educational system since that time, since 1983, how's it done? We've made some modest gains. If you judge by things like uh, test scores and graduation rates, uh, most of the gains on test scores have been in the early grades, though high school graduation rates have improved. High school achievement by various measures has not improved much. Uh, We haven't made nearly the gains that the people that wrote The Nation at Risk uh, were urging upon us. And Mm -hmm. while we've been sort of running in place, uh, trying a lot of things for sure, including charter schools, a lot of other countries have frankly been gaining on us as you look at the various Mm -hmm. international comparisons. So it's not, uh, in my view, not good enough to make slow gains if others that are our competitors, our allies, and sometimes our enemies are making faster gains. So, David, why did we turn to charter schools in the first place? What did we think they were going to try to solve for us? What were they going to do for us? Well, this was uh, eight years after a nation at risk, and we had enacted reforms and weren't seeing results. And some people thought, you know, we really need to create an innovation zone, if you will, in public education. These schools, these traditional districts are very centralized, and the key decisions are made at headquarters, and principals don't have the power to hire who they want, fire who they want, determine the pay scales, change the educational model. They're caught in a web of bureaucracy, and they can't change. So let's try to create schools that have the autonomy to invent better ways to educate the kids who enroll in their schools, and then let's hold them accountable for their performance. And if they fail, let's close them. But if they succeed, let's encourage them, expand them, replicate them. Hmm. Um, Chester, can you 
define what a charter school is? Because I think like a lot of people, I know these uh, haze of terms, you know, there's public schools, there's charter schools, there's uh, exam schools, there's magnet schools. What What's a charter school? Yes, it's uh, it can be confusing, but we're up to almost 7,000 charter schools across the country. So uh, it's sort of surprising how few people really have figured out what they are. Right. Uh, I mean, millions of kids attend them now. A charter school is a public school, but it's not a public school operated by the traditional school district. It's an independently operated public school uh, with quite a lot of the autonomies that uh, David was just suggesting, at least in states with decent charter laws. Uh, Charter schools have most of those autonomies. They can be started by uh, parents, by educators, by um, nonprofit organizations, by universities, by others. And they're schools of choice. Uh, They're not schools that you're assigned to attend. They're schools that uh, you opt into because you think it offers you or your child a better opportunity than Mm -hmm. the one available in the regular traditional district. So they're less regulated than district schools. They are, for the most part, independent of the district. But what makes them public is that they're open to everybody. Uh, They're publicly financed. They don't charge tuition. Uh, and they are ultimately accountable to public authorities for their performance. Hmm. So, David, I think, what is it, 5 or 6% of kids in America go to charter schools. 6%. Is that right? 6%. Okay. That's not very many. If only 6% of our kids are going to them, how have they changed education? How have they changed even schools that are not charter schools? Well, of that 6%, the the great majority are in urban areas because most of the people who create charter schools are dedicated do-gooders trying to help poor and minority kids. So in the cities, you have much higher concentrations in many cities. Uh, New Orleans, as you said, is now up to 93%. Next year, it'll be 100% in charters. That's amazing. Washington, D.C., yeah. what last year was 46%. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet. It's probably 47 this year. Detroit is over 50%. There are something like 30 cities that have uh, over 30% of their kids in charters. One, they create really innovative schools, all kinds of different models. I mean, you know, you can have a Montessori bilingual elementary school. Mm. You can have a residential high school for kids whose home lives are chaotic. Hmm. You have single, a few single-sex schools, uh, just many, many different models. They also impact the districts, of course. Most of the districts where charters become numerous do respond. They realize, look, we're losing a lot of kids, and therefore we're losing a lot of money, So we've got to figure out how to offer something better so the parents want to come to our schools. So that competition has resulted in a lot of innovation in districts. Now, let me ask you about the politics of this, because one of the interesting things is that my understanding from from experts I've talked to is that people who tend to be most helped by charter schools – often support politicians who don't really support charter schools. And people who tend to be least helped by charter schools tend to support politicians, you could call them Republicans, who tend to be a lot more supportive of charter schools. How do you explain that sort of paradox where people are doing this funny sort of political crossover? It's a great question, and it's an interesting paradox. It's not a complete paradox. Most uh, states with charter laws started in a bipartisan way. 
And there's still quite a lot of bipartisan support for charter schools, uh, especially at the uh, presidential or gubernatorial level. When it comes to sort of parsing legislators within a state, however, uh, what you said is, uh, is broadly speaking true. Uh, a lot of support has come from uh, suburban Republicans who don't want charter schools in their own cushy suburbs. And the beneficiaries right. are, for the most part, urban kids whose districts are represented by Democrats who are taking orders in many cases from the teachers union and who therefore don't want to vote for charter schools, even though their constituents are attending them. Can I add to this? Yeah, um, please do. You know, charters came mostly from Democrats. The first bill was in Minnesota, carried by Democrats. Uh, I think the second was California, carried by Democrats. Then Colorado, Democrats. Then Massachusetts, Democrats. I was shocked to learn when I was doing the research that that the head of the American Federation for Teachers, one of of the first people was like, let's have some charter schools. Like that just completely, you know, went against my view of how the political alignment is today. He was one of the key originators of the idea. It was a group. It was a group thing, but he was one of those who really contributed. Um, But at a certain point in time, the teachers unions realized that most charter schools were not unionizing, that they embraced a more professional model where the teachers had a role in helping to run the school and didn't feel a need for a union. And then they they put two and two together and realized as the charter sector grows, our union is going to shrink. And they basically declared war on charters. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, you had Democratic legislators who often represent the urban areas starting to vote against charters. And you had Republicans who wanted innovation, wanted choices, and sort of ideologically agreed with more of a market approach. Voting Didn't feel for, good about teachers' unions in right, general. Had right. No, they weren't going to get those votes anyway. Right. So they were more supportive of charters, and, and that's kind of where we are today. So I'm going to get into some of those questions that unions have, but but let's do one thing first, which is talk about a place. Let's talk about a place where charters have really worked and a place where charters have not worked as well. Um, David, you want to talk about a place where charters have really worked? Sure. Think? And I could pick uh, many different cities. The, the ones I wrote about in the book are New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Denver and Indianapolis. I'll just talk about New Orleans because it's the most dramatic was one of the worst school districts in America before Hurricane Katrina. Um, Half the kids dropped out. Less than 20% went to college. It was corrupt. It was almost bankrupt. Uh, After Katrina, 25 district officials, including the chairwoman of the state board, were indicted for corruption. Wow. Um, A real mess. So the state legislature, both parties were completely fed up with New Orleans public schools. So the state legislature voted to take any school, public school in New Orleans that was performing below the state average and put it in this new thing they had created two years before called the Recovery School District. And that district gradually converted many of these schools to charters. And we see the most rapid improvement in the country, if not in American history. So you have a very poor city, 82% African-American, about the same percentage, low income, that is outperforming its state on the key metrics, high school graduation and college going rates. That's unheard of in this country. Chester, do you want to take the other side of that question and talk about a place where uh, charter schools are not doing that well? Maybe they are underperforming and like what we can learn from that. Yeah, there are 
number of places where charters are marginally better than the dismal school districts that surround them, but uh, you still shouldn't be proud of what you're seeing there. Uh, most people, I think, would cite Detroit as an example of that. I'm going to pick on a smaller example that I know pretty well, which is Dayton, Ohio, where more than 30% of the kids are in charter schools, where my organization, the Thomas B. Fordham Foundation, is an authorizer of a few of the charter schools, um, but where a huge number of the fraction of the charter schools in Dayton, while they may be marginally better than the dismal district, are pretty pretty mediocre schools. Because the way Ohio's charter law works, lots of people who really shouldn't have been given charters in the first place were given them. And the bad ones haven't been shut down. They've just been continued on year after year. And the parents like them well enough because they're safe and friendly and and, uh, welcoming. Um, But when you look at the results they're producing, uh, and I would uh, happily exempt three of the charter schools we sponsor in Dayton because they're terrific schools. But an awful lot of them are just almost as mediocre as the district schools that the kids would otherwise be going to. And that's because of a bunch of um, structural and fiscal and policy reasons that are built in to the way Ohio has organized its uh, charter sector. We have 44 states, I think it is now, with charter laws, plus the District of Columbia. And they're they're all different. And so there have been states that have made big mistakes. Mm. Ohio was one of them. They just, they allowed too many authorizers, and then they didn't hold the authorizers accountable for the school's performance. Many of these states are trying to fix the situation, but you, you see a lot of variety from state to state. Is that a, a key, Chester, to be really sort of picky about who is qualified enough to open up a charter school? Yeah, it's a real um, tough trade-off because if you're very picky about who's qualified to open it up, and that would account largely for the successes in, for example, Boston and New York, uh, you do end up with, on the whole, very strong charter schools that you would be pleased to send your child to. On the other hand, you don't end up with very many charter schools. And that's where you get into lotteries and stuff, right, where hardly anybody's getting into these schools. And you get the long waiting lists, the painful lotteries where where thousands of kids are, are in tears because they didn't get in because uh, the supply doesn't equal the demand. But when you let mm. the supply equal the demand, you risk ending up with mediocre schools as well. Mm. But if you have a strong authorizer who's who's doing their job, as in New Orleans, as in D.C., as in Denver— Over time, they can authorize a lot of charter schools, but each year they can be careful. So you can have both. You can have high quantity and high quality. You just, you can't have it overnight. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with David Osborne, author of the book Reinventing America's Schools. And also with me is Chester Finn, author of the book Charter Schools at the Crossroads. And we're talking about the influence of charter schools on American education. Um, So let's dive into some of the uh, real questions that people have who are not sure or don't like charter schools. One thing you hear is that charter schools pull money away from public schools. You know, a kid says, okay, well, I won the, you know, the charter school lottery and I'm going to go to charter school and my money is going to follow me there. And all this money ends up getting drained out of a public school classroom and and a public school teacher is trying to make do with with a lot less funding. Carrie, that's impossible. You want to talk about that? Okay. Because charter schools are public schools. So they're not draining a dime from public schools. Okay, how does it work? They're draining money from school districts, traditional school districts. Now, 
Do we believe that the money belongs to the traditional school districts, or do we believe that the legislators appropriated the money to educate the children? So if a child moves from one district to another, do we want the money staying in the first district? Of course not. The money goes with the child. It's the same with charters. If you suddenly have, if you had 100 fifth graders last year, and this year you've got 90, should we still fund you for 100? Would that be right? Does it cause um, tremendous financial hardship to the school, you know, where the, the kids leave? Because one tricky thing is it can change I, potentially wildly from year to year, right, how many kids you have in your school, where it's just a normal uh, sort of people flowing in and out of your district because they're moving uh, may not be it doesn't, as fast. It doesn't change the numbers wildly from year to year. Mm. But uh, sure, if you have leadership leaders of your school and your district who don't change anything when their conditions change, then you'll end up with schools with half the seats empty. You still have to heat them. You still have to light them. And you'll end up in financial crisis. Mm. On the other hand, if, if you have leaders at the school board level, the superintendent level, and, and the school level who are able to respond to new circumstances, they're going to do something creative. They're going to say, okay, we're down to half the seats, so let's lease out half the building to a charter operator. That's what happens in Denver, for example. Let me add, let me add one financial point. Um, on average around the country, charters get only about three quarters as many dollars per student as do the district schools. And that means that while some of the money leaves the district for the charter when the child leaves, some of the money associated with that child stays with the district. Uh, In fact, typically the state dollars move and the locally generated, the property tax or school levy dollars stay put uh, and don't move to the charter school. And I I sort of joke sometimes that in, in a district where there's only one child left in the district because everybody else has gone to the charter schools, that one child is going to have many millions of dollars spent on his education. Um, Chester, let's talk about the other, I think one other really big concern that people have. It's that, you know, okay, so you've got a big district. Uh, there's a few charter schools available. You know, the very motivated parents or the very motivated kids try to get into those charter schools and or the charter schools themselves pick those children and the people who are left behind are maybe people whose parents didn't know, you know, very much about charter schools. Maybe they have special education needs and the charter schools thought, well, I don't know, we don't really have the resources to deal with this child. I mean, do charter schools end up taking a kind of unfair representation, leaving leaving public schools with an equally unfair representation of who's in that district? It's a frequently asked question, and it needs to be uh, said that you want to beware of slipping into what I've, I've come to call worst case social policy, where any given education reform is deemed to be unjust or a failure if it doesn't deal with the worst imaginable child situation that you can dream up. Uh, The fact of the matter is that the kids attending charter schools, by and large, are poor and minority. Um, uh, Many of them do indeed have motivated parents. And uh, I think that's uh, those are those are lucky children. But those are motivated parents who are not getting their children well educated uh, in the traditional district schools, which is why they want to move. I will not say that every charter school is right for every child uh, and any more than every district school is right for every child. Mm. Uh, 
David, your daughter um, taught at a charter school that I think you described as struggling yeah. in New Orleans. Um, what did you learn from that experience? What did she learn from that experience? Oh, gosh, it was so helpful to me because here I'm doing all this research and, and she's right there on the ground. Kind of Mary's theory and practice. Isn't yeah, it? very yeah. poor kids, all African-American and a pretty poorly run charter school. So I would visit and um, it was so helpful to me to just keep my feet on the ground um, and realize that this is complicated and it doesn't all work. She learned how important consistent discipline is in a school uh, because the biggest problem at her school was that a fight would break out in the classroom. She was teaching fifth and sixth grade English and the teacher would send the student to the discipline dean and the discipline dean, rather than providing the discipline that, that the policy said he should, would 10 minutes later send the kid back to class. Mm. Totally undermined the teachers, undermined their control of the classroom. And that school lost a lot of good young teachers because they didn't want to deal with that. Mm. Um, the other big thing that she learned was that a good school wasn't enough for those kids. They had so much trauma in their lives. You know, this is, these are kids whose families went through Katrina and there's been a murder epidemic among teenagers, particularly African-American teenagers in New Orleans since Katrina. Mm. So a lot of her kids knew family members or people in the neighborhood who'd been killed. Um, she, she felt that those kids needed more than a good school. Mm. And so she went, she left after three years and went to graduate school to try to figure out, you know, what more could we do for families living in poverty in the inner city to help their children succeed. Chester, what do you see happening to the charter school movement? Is it gaining steam? Uh, are regulators, you know, concerned or cracking down? I mean, I just wonder if we were to have this conversation again in 15 or 20 years, right? You think back to like a nation at risk. If we were to have this conversation again in a little while, uh, where do you think we'd be? We'd be seeing a lot more charter schools, for one thing. I, it's been been growing by leaps and bounds, and I see absolutely no reason to think that that's going to stop. Uh, we'd see a lot more quasi-charter schools or, or similar to charter schools operated by districts and um, themselves and by others. We're, we will also see, however, uh, unrelenting and continuing and increasingly desperate political pushback by teacher unions and others that would like charters to go away. Um, if they're smart, they'll co-opt charter teachers into joining the unions. But so far, they've had very limited success in that. So they'd rather now try to kill off charters, which they won't do, but they will make it harder to survive. And there, there is a real risk of over-regulating uh, charters because every time something goes wrong in a charter school, uh, somebody in any charter school in a state, somebody wants to put a new regulation on all charter schools in the state. And you could end up with charters that lack much of that crucial autonomy. Um, that uh, David was talking about and that, and that is uh, present in every successful charter school. So I think we're going to see a um, mixed bag. But on the whole, the country is moving toward educational choices for families, and they're coming in many forms, uh, including uh, private schools, magnet schools, virtual schools, uh, home schools. And that's going to continue unstopped. And I think we're going to uh, uh, see some improved 
academic results uh, as a consequence mm. of all this. In your view, we talked in the very beginning about about being behind other countries and not not you know moving fast enough in terms of our education system. In your view, bigger than charter schools, looking at the whole education system, are we moving fast enough? Are we getting better fast enough? No, not fast enough by any means. But uh, two big changes have occurred um, since a nation a nation at risk, and they're both pretty positive, I think, for the country. Uh, the one we've been talking about is the arrival of options and choices and uh, some freedom to pick your school and to have schools have greater freedom to operate. The other big change, of course, and controversial but nevertheless happening, is that we have academic standards now for schools and we're judging schools by their um, outcomes rather than as we used to do by what's spent on them or what their promises are or, uh, or, or how, how nice their building is. So the movement towards standards and accountability on the one hand and towards school choices on the other hand are going to make things better. Fast enough? Well, no. I'd say uh, Singapore is still moving faster. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if we could convince people that the evidence from New Orleans, from D.C., from Denver, even from Boston, says if we organized public schools in this new way, we could double their effectiveness in less than 10 years. And that is what the evidence says. When Maybe we can speed it up. When you talk mm -hmm. about effectiveness, are we talking about um, a test? And if so, what test are we talking We're about? We're talking about multiple. You can't just use test scores. Okay. I mean, I argue that we, test scores should only be half the picture. We should also look at graduation rates. We should look at parental judgments. We should survey parents and ask how they judge the quality of a school. And we should send experts in, as many authorizers do, to the school every couple of years and do a qualitative assessment of mm -hmm. the quality of that school. Because test scores only tell you a certain amount. There's a lot you can't get from test scores. So mm -hmm. we need to be much more sophisticated about how we judge quality. Mm -hmm. David Osborne is the director of the Reinventing America School Project at the Progressive Policy Institute. He's also the author of the book Reinventing America's Schools. Chester Finn is a president emeritus at the Fordham Institute, and he's a former assistant secretary of education and author of the book Charter Schools at the Crossroads, Predicaments, Paradoxes, and Possibilities. Thanks to both of you for being here. Oh, thank you. Been a pleasure. We want to hear from you about your experience with charter schools. Do you have a child who goes to one? Do you live in a city that has embraced them? Is that a good thing? Write to us or email us a voice memo at innovationhub at wgbh.org. That's innovationhub at wgbh.org.